Welcome back to another episode of Grecology, the podcast of Gospel Reformation UK. And as we continue with this uh, series of special episodes, archaeologists have recently uncovered the lost audio file to uh, Zoom Utopia 4 with Ligon Duncan on the topic of reformed and always reforming. And this one actually also includes the question and answer segment uh, at the end. So stay tuned to that. Well, a very, very warm welcome to another Zoom Utopia. Who would have thought that would even have one? Uh, we've had two, we've had three. Uh, we're, this is our fourth. Uh, yes, I'm going to tell you in a moment, we're going to have another one as well. We're planning another one for late January, but I want to give you a very, very warm welcome. My name is Andy Young. I'm the church planting minister of Oxford Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and I'm one of the founders of Gospel Reformation UK. And what is Gospel Reformation UK? We're just four ministers who are trying to encourage and promote uh, Christians and promote the Reformed faith in the United Kingdom. Gospel Reformation UK uh, really has two focuses. We want to encourage uh, and promote the study and recovery of the Reformed faith uh, in the United Kingdom and, of course, throughout Europe and throughout this world, but specific to the United Kingdom. But we also have, and this was really in our DNA right from the beginning, a focus on church planting. Uh, two or three of us uh, who started GRUK are church planters, and there's such a need for church planting of reformed churches in the United Kingdom, indeed across our whole world, I know. But this is where the Lord has called us to, and we want to use GRUK to raise the profile of church planting, reformed church planting in the UK. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. So a very, very warm welcome. We always said we'd never do conferences we still can't believe that we are, but we we grabbed, we grasped the nettle with the pandemic, with the COVID-19 pandemic, when everyone back in March, April were canceling, everything was getting stopped and canceled, all the conferences. So we looked at each other and said, hey, why don't we buck the trend, try and put something on. I suppose what's unique about uh, Zoom Utopia and what we're trying to do, what we like to tell each other it's unique anyway, is this, that this is a conference for Christians everywhere. There are great conferences for ministers, for elders, for missionaries. Uh, there are uh, lots of things for those kind of people, and we, we applaud those. I benefit from those. There actually isn't that much out there just for the average Christian, not in the UK anyway. So this is for you. This is for Christians everywhere. This is for young, old, and everyone in between, whether you're a young Christian, a new Christian, or a mature Christian, and you just want encouragement. And, and where do we go to get our encouragement? I, we go to God's word and we go to the preaching of God's word. And so all we've sought to do in our last three Zoom Utopias is bring to you uh, men who are going to open up the scriptures and preach God's word to you. And that's what we're doing again tonight. We're really excited to have Ligon Duncan with us. And we're going to be hearing from him in just a few moments. Can I just give you a few notices? just to uh, re-highlight some of the things that Michael said and also say one or two other things. We do have a website and I encourage you, if you haven't been to our website, to head over there. It is www.gr-uk.org, gr-uk.org. We're putting up new content regularly, blog posts, 
videos, links to things. So I encourage you to, to get over there and check out our website. Also, all the videos from pre, uh, pre, uh, previous Zoom Utopias are available on our YouTube channel, and you can find them on our website as well. Again, go to YouTube, search Gospel Reform Reformation UK. You'll find us there, and you can go and listen to previous Zoom Utopias, etc. So I encourage you to think about doing that and going there. We also have a podcast. We call it Grucology. G-I-U-K-ology. And again, we've got, I think, currently 23, 24 episodes out. We've got new episodes coming out regularly. So subscribe to that. You can listen to it on our website or you can go to Apple, to iTunes or uh, one of the other providers of podcasts and you can subscribe and listen. And again, we try and introduce new church plants, discuss theological issues of the day and encourage Christians everywhere in the Reformed faith. So Grucology, check that out. Just two more notices. Uh, Michael mentioned our bookstore. We're so pleased to be partnering with the Evangelical Bookshop over in Belfast with Colin Campbell and others who work with him. There's a link on our website on the Zoom Utopia page where you can go. We've got some, a special page they've set up for us with some of Lick and Duncan's books and other great resources. So I'd really encourage you to be readers. What a time of year. What a great gift you could do. You could, you could give to someone for Christmas. Buy some of these great books. Buy them to read yourself. Buy one to give to friends and family. Really encourage you to do that. Just finally, one final notice. We have Zoom Utopia 5 coming up, believe it or not. Was that hip hip hooray I hear from around the country and across the world? It probably was. Z5, it's going to be on Tuesday. Get your diaries and all your online calendars ready. Tuesday, it's not that far off. It's another Tuesday. 26th of January, so not long to wait, 26th of January, Tuesday, 26th of January. It'll be 7 to 8.30 again, put across on YouTube, Facebook, Periscope. And we are very pleased to have Matthew Roberts, who is the minister of Trinity IPC Church in York. And he's going to be here with us, preaching for us on the topic of why the end of the world is good news. Why the end of the world is good news. So put that in your diaries, Tuesday, 26th of January. We'll be putting more advertising out about that uh, as the date gets a little bit closer. I'm going to hand over now to Josh Rigo. We're very excited to have Ligon Duncan with us. And uh, over to you, Josh, all the way from Houston. Good to, good to see you. And thanks for, for doing this a little bit. Thanks so much. Oh, I'm really glad to be with you, Andy. Thank you so much for that introduction. As Andy said, I am Josh Rieger, uh, the minister of Hexham Presbyterian Church. And today I'm in Houston. So you can see this sunlight coming in and it is afternoon for me as it is evening for most of you. And uh, we want to thank you all for joining us. We at Gospel Reformation UK want to welcome you again. And, uh, and I want to say tonight, it is a privilege for us to have Ligon Duncan with us this evening. Uh, and it's a privilege for me to be able to introduce him. I've known Ligon, it's getting close to 15 years now. And uh, we were both younger and uh, we had more hair and less of it was gray, I think, when we met. Uh, he was one of my seminary professors. I had the privilege for several years to minister alongside Ligon at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, uh, Mississippi, and uh, and then he was also our family pastor for several years, 
And, uh, and now Ligon serves as the Chancellor of Reform Theological Seminary. He oversees all of the disparate campuses. He uh, sets the vision there. He, he raises the funds needed to uh, educate young men uh, for the ministry. And, uh, and I want to say that, that our family is very proud to call Ligon a, a dear friend. And, uh, and we've been indelibly impacted by his uh, teaching ministry over the years. And so I want to I welcome uh, Ligon and ask him if he would preach for us this evening. And we're so thankful to have him with us. Thank you so much, Josh. Uh, it's a joy to be with you. I've already seen the names of a number of folks that I, I recognize. Uh, I had the privilege of living in Britain for about four years doing, during my postgraduate study. And so I, I know ministers in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I know uh, ministers in the IPC. I know uh, ministers in the FIEC. I know ministers in the Church of England and the Church of Scotland and the Free Church of Scotland and a number of different uh, bodies there in Britain. I continue to enjoy friendship uh, with so many people uh, who have blessed me. And so it's a particular joy to be able to be with you today. Uh, I have, it has been suggested to me that we look at the topic of reformed and always reforming. And as was said at the beginning of this conference, uh, I want to speak specifically to the issue of worship and discipleship. And, and you may be wondering, how do you move from reformed and always reforming to the matters of worship and discipleship? So let me just give you a little background before we get there. I, I would like you to have your Bibles handy because we're going to stay in the scriptures as we move through uh, the conference, and uh, we're actually going to start in John chapter 4. So if you want to go ahead and turn to John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at two verses there in particular. But let me give you a little background. The, the, the phrase reformed and always reforming is actually a motto that, we, uh, that, that comes from a statement that dates back at least to the 17th century. It comes from a 17th century Dutch minister in what was known as the Dutch Further Reformation, which was somewhat like the English Puritan movement or the uh, movement of Scottish Presbyterianism about the same time uh, north of the border there. And that statement, uh, reformed and always reforming, didn't mean uh, sort of ever learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth, nor did it mean that we are going to be perpetually revising our theology. You know, our, our theology is just going to be changing all the time. What it meant was that we, the truth we confess in, in, in the great Reformed Confession, so many, many of the folks on the call are in churches where the Westminster Confession of Faith is the official uh, theological standard of your fellowship of churches. When we say uh, reformed and always reforming, we don't mean changing the doctrine of the church. We mean working that doctrine deep down into us and then out in 
to our lives. Reformed and always reforming means that our hearts and our lives are being reformed according to the Word of God, by the Word, and by the Spirit of God, so that our lives are conformed to the Word of God. And we know that that is not an instantaneous thing. Uh, That is a lifelong process. Very uh, godly, mature people can be exceedingly uh, uh, mature and uh, spiritually shaped in certain parts of their lives and yet have other areas of their lives in which they need to grow. David is a great example of that. You know, in, in, in 2 Samuel 7, he shows a remarkable humility. Uh, in 2 Samuel 7, at the apex of his political power, He looks out the window of his palace in Jerusalem and he sees the Ark of the Covenant in a tent and he says, you know, who am I to be living in a palace of cedar when the Ark of God is in a tent? Because God is greater than I am. That's remarkable. Most people who are at the apex of their political power are tempted to haughtiness or arrogance. And there's David showing a remarkable humility. And yet, a few chapters later, he's looking out of the window of his palace and he spies a woman who is married to another man, and he wants her for himself, and he takes her. And he not only violates God's law against adultery, and he not only abuses her, but he ends up killing her husband. So here's here's in one man a remarkable area of growth and maturity, and, and then another area where there's an abject failure in his life. All of us have areas of our lives where we desperately need to grow, even the most mature of us. And so when we say reformed and always reforming, we're talking about our hearts and our lives being reformed according to God's word. And of course, we mean that corporately as well. We want our we want our churches to be more Christ-like. We want our churches to be uh, uh, more shaped by the word of God in our public life with one another, not just our private lives, but in our public life together as church members. And then, of course, as we live in the world, we want our lives to be shaped by the Word of God. So that's what reformed and always reforming means. Now, one of the main ways that God does that in our lives is through the means of grace. And the main place where we receive and experience and are worked on by those means is in public worship, where the congregation gathers under the ministry of God's word to hear the scriptures read and preached, to sing and pray them back to God, and to see the scriptures' promises visibly represented and confirmed in the sacraments or the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that makes the church, the gathering of the congregation, very important, indeed essential. And, and I think that that's hit all of us. I mean, all Christians that I'm talking to around the world during this pandemic, because of the disruption that it has meant to our worship services, in some places, almost all public assemblies are impossible right now. Uh, in, in some places, governments are very, very tight and, and churches are not physically meeting. In other places, 
they're meeting under significant duress. You know, it, it is a very different thing, isn't it? To be in a building uh, where you're relatively close to people and you're not wearing masks and you're singing at the top of your lungs and you're sharing uh, hymn books with one another uh, or psalters with, with one another. And then it's a different thing, isn't it, to be in a room where you're spaced at least, at least six feet apart from someone else and you've got masks on and there are no uh, hymn books or pew Bibles or psalters that you're, you're either uh, reading off of a bulletin or you're reading off of a screen. It's a very, very different thing, isn't it, to have all of the kinds of, even if we are able to meet, there are certain restrictions that I'm seeing Christians all over the world have to deal with right now. And I hope that one of the things that will come out of that is that we will treasure the privilege and this essentially important reality of public worship, gathered worship, where the congregation comes together under the word of God as a means of grace for the praise of God's glory and our own everlasting good. I hope that we will treasure it more than we've ever treasured it before. Uh, I, I pray that it was something, it'll be something we never take for granted again. This has particularly hit me not only on the Lord's Day, but it's hit me at the time of funerals and weddings. I, I don't know how things are. We have people from all over. I think I heard from South Africa and various parts of Europe and all over Great Britain uh, and, and all the way out to California. And maybe there are others that have joined by now. I don't know how it is where you are, but here uh, in Mississippi, where I am today, uh, you know, what you can do in a wedding and what you can do in a funeral is very, very restricted as opposed to what things were like before the pandemic. And it means that I find myself at a, at a, at a funeral longing to be able to, to hug a dear friend who has lost his wife or who has lost his child and, and to just come close and express to him uh, my love and my support and, and my shared grief with him through what he's going through. And I can't do it. Um, and it's, it, 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 it kills me not to be able to have those sorts of normal expressions of things that we would do uh, if we were together under a normal circumstance. So I hope that if we come through this, we will all appreciate gathered worship more than ever before. The church is important. Indeed, it is essential to God reforming us sitting under the means of grace, engaging in the various acts of public worship uh, is an essentially important way that God goes about the work of discipleship. I think all of us know that, that in worship, our ultimate focus is on God. We come to give God the glory due his name. But what I want us to realize is as we come to give God the glory due his name in public worship, God is doing something to us. God is working on us in that moment that we come to worship him. When, when our eyes are fixed on him and blessing him and praising him, he is actually doing things to us and for us for our good. And he is especially reforming us according to his word, and he is discipling us by his spirit in accordance with his word. And I want us to appreciate that like never before. And so today I'd like to turn your attention first to John chapter 4. 
I want us to look at part of verse 23 and verse 24. I wish that we could expound the whole chapter, but I, w- I simply want you to draw your attention to a few things. And then what I want to do is walk through the main uh, elements of public worship and talk about how God uses those things to reform us and to disciple us so that as Christians, we will understand better what God intends to do to us and for us as we come to him in worship. And if you're a pastor, this also should help you think about what you are to do as you lead the people of God in worship, what you're trying to provide for them Uh, even as you help them come to God in worship. And by the way, if you are a pastor and you'd like to think about those things more deeply, you can go to rts.edu and look at the John Reed Miller lectures. All of this is available for free. I spoke on this topic extensively aimed at pastors. Today's message is not going to be aimed at pastors, but if pastors are listening and you'd like to think about this a little bit more, you can go listen to the John Reed Miller lectures from this year, from November of 2020 at rts.edu, and you can get all of that for free. Uh, But I want to draw all of our attention simply as the people of God, as members of the church, as those who trust in Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel, so that we can think about what God is doing to us in discipling us as we seek to worship him publicly together in the assembly of the saints. And before we read John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, let's pray and ask for his help and blessing. Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and they fall, but your word stands, and it stands forever. Your word is truth, so sanctify us with truth. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Hear it in John 24, beginning about halfway into verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Now, this is an incredibly rich passage. It comes in the midst of a conversation that I call the most important conversation on the subject of worship in the history of the world. Jesus is talking with the woman at the well in Samaria, and they have what is arguably the most important discussion about worship that ever occurred in human history. And by the way, isn't that a picture of God's grace? You know, I, I can I can imagine the angels saying to the Lord, don't you think it'd be better for Jesus to have this conversation, say, with 
Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, or maybe with the assembled apostles in Jerusalem uh, after the resurrection. But no, uh, he's going to have this conversation uh, about the essence of spiritual worship with a woman who's been married five times and is living with a man and is perhaps an outcast in her village. And so he's shown up in the middle of the way, in the middle of the day to draw water at the well. It's just a picture of God's grace. God's doing that all the time. He is, um, he, he is prodigal with his generosity and his blessings to people like us that don't deserve them. And, uh, and here he is having this amazing conversation with a woman that perhaps many of us, if, if we had been around, maybe we would have looked upon her sort of like the Pharisees might have looked upon her or the proper people of her town might have looked upon her. But Jesus has this amazing conversation with her. In the middle of that conversation, he says several things. First, notice that he emphasizes that God is seeking people to worship him. In other words, God wants us to value him more than anything and to express that in our lips and lives. That's really what worship is, isn't it? It's valuing God more than anything else and expressing his value in our lips and our lives. It's saying, God, you are the most valuable thing in this world. You're the most important thing in this world. You're the best thing that there is in this world. There is nothing greater than you in this world. You are what I value. You are what I worship. And, and by the way, let's remember, friends, even unbelievers worship. Non-Christians worship all the time. They just worship the wrong thing. They, they worship themselves. They, they worship their wills, they worship money, they worship stuff, they, they worship power, they, wor they worship ambition, they worship sex, they, they, they worship themselves. Everybody worships. But what God has called us to is to true worship, and true worship values God more than anything else. It, it values God even over the gifts that God gives. God has given us so many wonderful gifts in this world, but we're not to ultimately worship those things, even things that are gifts of God. We are to worship God himself. And in this passage, Jesus makes it clear that God is seeking true worshipers. And then he says this remarkable thing about God. He says, God is spirit, capital S, or God is a spirit, depending on how you want to translate it. Now, you need to ask yourself a question. What does Jesus mean by this? When he says God is spirit or God is a spirit, capital S, what does he mean by that? And I, we, we could spend a lot of time doing justice to a biblical answer to that question. But at the very least, I think Jesus is telling you this. God is an infinite, eternal, invisible, real, personal being, that God is spirit. He is an infinite, eternal, invisible, real, personal being. Now, that, that needs to raise another question in your mind. If God is seeking worshipers and he wants us to worship him, and God is a spirit, that is, he's an infinite, eternal, invisible, real, personal being, how exactly does one go about worshiping him? You, you can't see him. 
He is infinite. He is, he is, he is beyond all of our finite capacities. How do we go about worshiping him? How do we go about meeting with him? How do we go about engaging with him? How how exactly do you go about worshiping or meeting with or experiencing or uh, engaging with a spirit? And the, the biblical answer to that question is, however he tells you to. The, the, the only way you can worship a spirit, an infinite, eternal, invisible personal being is how that spirit tells you to do it. And that means that the word of God is absolutely essential to worshiping him. You can't worship God any old way you please. You have to worship God the way he tells you to. You have to worship him according to his word. And by the way, this is you know, this, this conference is being put on by Presbyterian and Reformed folk from the United Kingdom, and uh, it, this is one of the hallmarks of Presbyterian and Reformed theology, that worship must be according to Scripture. Why? Because we don't know how to worship unless God tells us how to do so by his word. The Australian Anglican who taught for many years at Oak Hill College in England, David Peterson, uh, wrote a book on this subject, and he gave this definition of worship. Worship is engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. In, in other words, if you're going to engage with God, uh, two things have to happen. One is you have to do it on the terms that he proposes. You, you don't even know how to engage with him unless he tells you this is how you do. This is how you come to me. And then secondly, he has to make it possible. Uh, because he's infinite and eternal and invisible, uh, he has to tell you how it is and make it possible for you uh, to engage with him. And that means that God's word is going to be central to everything that we do in worship. But here's the other thing. That, that not only means that God's word directs both the form and the content of what we do when we gather to worship. It also means that God's word in worship is the means by which he is reforming us and discipling us. It's the means by which he is crafting us, building us, changing us, growing us, shaping us, into followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, make, rebuilding in us the ruined image that uh, was marred because of the sin of Adam. And so it's by the word that God disciples us, and it's especially by his word as a means of grace in the context of public worship that God is doing this work of discipleship in us. And so in the time that we have today, very briefly, what I want you to do is ref reflect upon five things that God commands us to do in worship. And I want you to think with me about what God intends to do in us by those five things. I want you to think, and, and let me just give you five words. And this, if, if you're a note taker, this will be your outline. If you're not a note taker, but you've got a good memory, these five words will be your outside outline. Read preach, pray, sing, see. Read, preach, pray, 
sing, see. Uh, in, in five particular ways, God reforms and disciples us by the reading, hearing, praying, singing, and seeing of the word. Now, let me explain what I mean by each of those things. First, let's, let's look at read. God reforms and disciples us in public worship by our carefully attending to the reading of his word. In public worship, one of the things that we are to do is read the word. Now, let me just pause right now and say, uh, I, in general, I find that Reformed and um, Evangelical Protestant churches in Britain do a better job at some of the things I'm going to talk about than some of the Reformed and Presbyterian churches do uh, in in America. So there's a sense in which I'm sort of preaching to the choir. Uh, many of you are already in congregations that do the things that I'm talking about. But even so, that, that makes it even better, right? Even so, it's even more important for you to realize what a benefit you're getting from that. How, what a blessing that is. Don't take that for granted and make sure that the church doing this well, because of its conviction of what the Bible teaches, Make sure you understand how that's supposed to work in you. So here's the first one. God reforms and disciples us by our carefully attending to the reading of his word in public worship. There's nothing more important in Christian public worship than the reading of the scriptures. God, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says to Timothy, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. So, so for Paul, the reading of the word aloud when the congregation gathers is a required part of public worship, just like the sermon is a required part of public worship. He actually, in that verse, goes on to tell uh, Timothy to give attention to the preaching and teaching of the word, but he, he emphasizes the public reading of scripture. And this reminds us that for Paul, the reading of the word of God out loud when the congregation gathers is something that is essential to public worship. And this idea does not originate with Paul. It, it actually goes all the way back to the Old Testament and all the way back to the days of Moses, when the children of Israel gathered at Mount Sinai for worship after the Exodus, what did Moses do? Exodus 24, 7. He read the book of the covenant to them. And when uh, Joshua uh, takes the people of God into the promised land, what does he do? Joshua chapter 8, 35. He read all the words that Moses had commanded before the assembly of Israel. And when the, when the book of the law, the long lost book of the law was found by Hilkiah in the temple uh, in the days of good King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 34, we learned that the king himself, 2 Chronicles 34, verse 30, read all the words of the book of the covenant, which were found in the house of the Lord. And when the children of Israel returned from exile, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra read the book of the law of Moses to the assembled people from morning until noonday. That's Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 
to 8, and all the people stood as he read out of reverence from the Word of God. That's probably the origin of the Anglican practice of standing at the reading of the Word of God. At the outset of Jesus' public ministry, how does Jesus' public ministry begin? Luke 4, 14 to 21, by reading the scriptures. He stands up in his home synagogue and he reads from the scriptures. He actually, he reads from the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So for thousands of years, from Moses' day to Jesus' day to Paul's day, the public reading of scripture was central to the gathering of the people of God. And that's the way it is today. We need to hear the word read. If we believe that the word of God is powerful and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword, we, we should recognize that as a means of grace, it will perform the work that God has appointed it to. Uh, Josh knows a story that I love to tell. There was a, a man uh, who became a wonderful elder in a Presbyterian church here in the United States who was listening to his, his pastor, was getting ready to preach a sermon series on Genesis 1 to 11. And as his pastor read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He not, not preaching on the passage, just reading that passage. That man was converted right there in the pew of that Presbyterian church, even though he had been reared in that church and had been a member of that church for many years. He, he, he told his pastor later, I realized when I heard Genesis 1-1 read from the scriptures that I was living as if it were not true. I, I was not living as if God was the almighty creator of everything. I was living as if I was the center of the universe. And so what, what happened was the Holy Spirit used the word of God to bring him to that conviction and then the gospel of that same word of God to bring him to a saving faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we shouldn't be surprised by that. The word of God is powerful and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. So we, we ought to hear the word read. And, and for those of us who are believers, that means that hearing our pastors read the word of God in public worship, that is a big deal. That's not filler. You know, that, that's not time for you to check out and think about something else and, or wait till something important comes along, like the sermon. No, no, the reading of the Word of God is an, it's, it's, it's a, it's an unvarnished, direct communication from God to you. If you ever wondered, what does God think about this? He tells you, and then when your pastor reads these words to you, you're hearing God's message to you read aloud in your own language. That is an enormous privilege. When you know, It doesn't matter how small your congregation is. Some of you may be in congregations that have 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 people that gather on Lord's Day mornings or evenings. And you may think, oh, this is kind of small and you know, I wish there were more people here. And there are so many people that are going after unbelieving things down the street or Whatever, but remember when you're hearing the word of God read in a little assembly of believers, you are hearing something that five billion people on this planet have never heard. You're, you're hearing the word of God as a means of grace in a public Christian service of worship read to you in your own language. 
that is our forebears. And, and look, especially those of you in Great Britain, uh, your spiritual forebears, some of them were burned at the stake so that you could hear the word of God in English. That is an amazing thing. It is an amazing privilege to be able to hear the word of God in our own language, the, the, our tongue, our heart language uh, read to us from the pulpit as a means of grace. It is a, it, a John Reed Miller, who was a, a pastor at the church where I served for many years, he, he said, Ligon, the reading of the word of God ought to be an event. Because it is. It's, it is a huge event, and we ought never, ever take it for granted. So why? Because that's one of the ways that God reforms and disciples us. He did, you know, the world is constantly telling us what to think. And our time on the Lord's day with the Lord's people in the Lord's house under the Lord's word is all designed to reorient everything in life and remind us that God's word is more important than any other word that is spoken into our ears and our hearts in this world. And so it's designed to reorient our lives according to this word. So that's the first thing that I want you to see. God reforms and disciples us in the hearing of his word read in public worship. Secondly, he reforms and disciples us by our attentively listening to the preaching of his word in public worship. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. One of his frequently repeated sayings was like in Matthew eleven fifteen, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And even in the message to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, we hear that phrase repeated, for instance, in Revelation 2, 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, will say, we constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. That's 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And of course, we already mentioned 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul says, Timothy, give attention to the preaching and the teaching of the word. And of course, famously, he also says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, uh, preach the scriptures, preach the word of God, preach the whole counsel of God. Timothy, why? Because a sermon, the preaching of God's word, the exposition of the scriptures, facilitates a word-mediated encounter with the living God. I've always loved the description. It's more of a description than it is a definition. Uh, but the description that J.I. Packer gives of what a sermon is. Uh, you'll find it in his little book, uh, Truth and Power. It's a wonderful chapter. I think it's called Mouthpiece of the Lord. He meditates on, on some of Richard Baxter's instructions on how to hear the Word of God preached. But he, here's what he says. He says, a sermon is an applicatory declaration spoken in God's name and for his praise in which some part of the written word of God delivers through the preacher some part of its message about God and godliness in relation to those whom the preacher addresses. Now, isn't that a marvelous description of 
what a sermon is. But here's what I really want you to catch in, in that definition for our purposes right now. He says that in preaching, the word of God delivers through the preacher a message about God and godliness. It's not the preacher using the word of God. It's the word of God using the preacher. The word of God is not the tool of the preacher. The preacher is the tool of the word of God. We are the instrument of the word of God. Uh, it is God himself speaking in the scriptures who uses the preacher as a tool, as an instrument to deliver to his people a message about God and godliness. And that's why I say in a, in a sermon, what we what, what's happening is the minister gets to facilitate a word-mediated encounter with God. The, the minister is not the mediator, you see. <laughs> the God himself in Christ is the mediator. And it, it's a word-mediated encounter between God and his people. And so, as it were, the minister's job is to deliver the word, God's word, and get out of the way. The minister isn't a priest there. The, the minister is simply facilitating this encounter between God's people and God by his word and spirit. And, you know, many people want to know, how can I engage with God? And part of the answer to that is by his word. He comes to you in his word. He tells you about himself. He tells you of his promises. He tells you of his plans. He calls upon you to respond in faith to his promises and his plans and to his person. And in the preaching of God's word, this is why it's so important for ministers to preach the Bible and not their own ideas, to preach the Bible and not what's on social media, to preach the Bible and not whatever the, the latest cultural fad is, because this is the word of God. And God is speaking to his people. And if you want to encounter him, you need to hear his voice, not the siren voice of the culture, uh, not the opinions of the, the pastor, but what God says in his word, that's how we come to him. That's how we engage with him. And so when you sit under the preaching of the word of God, God is giving you, you know, it, it, remember, go back to David Peterson's definition. Worship is engaging with God on the terms that he proposes. So these are the terms he's telling you, this is how you come to me. And then in the way that he alone makes possible. He, he, he's inviting you to come to him, but how? This is another part of the message of John 4. Only through Jesus. The, the only way that you can come to God is through Jesus. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus says. So again, in Protestant worship, everything that we're doing is saying to our people, the only way to come to God is through Jesus. And by the way, this is this is very important because even in Protestant churches, evangelical churches in Britain and America and elsewhere, there can be a call to abandon expository preaching and to be superficially practical in our address of the congregation. And that can send the message that the Christian life is really simple. It's following four steps or five rules or six principles, when in fact the Christian life is a miracle. The only way you can come into the presence of God is by the activity of God. Uh, you can't live the Christian life in your own strength. You can only do it by the activity of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that our worship ought to say over and over is, we cannot do this by ourselves. 
only God at work in us can enable us to believe what we're to believe and live the way that we're to live. We are utterly dependent upon God and his grace and preaching of the word of God will make that clear. And it's one reason why the sermon is at the, the, it's, it's, it's at the very uh, heart and apex of what we're trying to do in public worship because it's God speaking to his people so that they may encounter him. And God reforms and disciples us according to the preaching of his word. Third, God reforms and disciples us by our lifting up our hearts to him through public prayer in our public worship and praying his word back to him. Uh, Jesus very famously said in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, my father's house is a house of prayer. It's very interesting that one of the idioms, one of the terms that is used to talk about public worship in the early chapters of Genesis is the expression, and they cried out to the Lord. Now, that's the language of prayer, and uh, but it's describing public worship. It's interesting that the, um, the standard Sunday morning worship service in the Anglican tradition where they don't serve the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion is called what? It's called morning prayer, right? And, and, and it's not just that they're only praying. No, they're, they're doing the other elements of worship except for the Lord's Supper at that service, but it's called morning prayer. Well, that's deeply rooted in scriptural tradition. Prayer is at the very heart of what we're doing in public worship. And, and of course, Paul himself will say, I want men to lift up their hands uh, holy hands uh, everywhere to the Lord in prayer. God reforms us and disciples us by our lifting up our hearts to him through public prayer in our public worship, praying his word, praying his praises, praying his promises, praying our intercessions, praying our supplications back to him in the words of scripture, in the theology of scripture, um, uh, shaped by uh, the, the things that Scripture wants to be implanted in us back to God in prayer. Prayer is a vitally important thing, and yet prayer is something, especially here in America, in many evangelical churches, it's almost completely absent. Anything like a pulpit prayer is almost completely absent. But for Presbyterians and those of us in confessional Reformed churches, pulpit prayer, studied free prayer led by the pastor for the benefit of the congregation. It's a hallmark of Reformed worship. And, and sadly, it's an increasing rarity in many evangelical churches today. Uh, a number of years ago, I was preaching a, a service in Jackson, Mississippi at First Presbyterian Church, and a, a freshman at a local university came up to me very excitedly at the end of the service. And, you know, when you're a pastor and and a, and a co-ed comes up to you at the end of the service, you're, you're hoping that the message was a blessing to them, and maybe they want to talk about something in the sermon. Maybe it's going to give you a gospel opportunity to share Christ with them, but that's not what she wanted to talk about. She wanted to talk about the pulpit prayer that Derek Thomas, who was my minister of, of, of uh, teaching at First Presbyterian Church, she wanted to talk about the pulpit prayer that Derek Thomas had preached. She had never heard a pulpit prayer like that before. And at first I thought, well, she must not be somebody from a church background to have never heard a pastoral prayer before. 
but she had never heard of a rich scriptural biblical prayer in which uh, Dr. Thomas essentially just put the congregation on his shoulders and carried them to the throne of grace and stormed the gates of heaven using the language and the theology of scripture to pray God's word back to him. It was deeply moving uh, to her. And I thought, isn't it sad that it turned out that she had been a Christian, her father was a pastor. And so she had grown up in church, but she had never heard that kind of scriptural prayer in church. Well, what's God doing to you? When, when you hear, when you participate in, when you lift up your hearts along with the minister, those who are praying in public prayer, well, one thing, God is working dependence in you. He's working on you to depend completely on him for the living of the Christian life. And then he's shaping your desires. You know, Christian, the Christian life is fought at the level of the desires. And through prayer, he's actually shaping your desires. Sometimes we don't know what we're to pray, right? I mean, Paul talks about that in, in Romans chapter 8. Sometimes we don't know what to pray. And what, what do the prayers of Scripture do for us when we don't know what to pray? They tell us what to pray. So I can go to the Psalms and I know what to pray. I can go to the prayers of Paul and I can know what to pray. I can go to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and I can know what to pray. And sometimes we just can't even get it out of our throats. We're so burdened or we're so discouraged. We, we just can't even get out of our throats. What do we start doing? We start praying the words of scripture back to God until God gives us the words of our own heart to bring to him. The Puritans used to say, pray until you pray. Isn't that wonderful? They, they understood this. They understood that very often when you start praying, your heart's not just, it's just not in it. And you gotta, you've got to do what? Pray until you pray. And the words of Scripture help you do that. But, but God is discipling you even as you participate in prayer. He is reforming you. He's discipling you through the prayers of the worship service. Fourth, God reforms and disciples us by our lifting up our hearts and our voices to him with the language and truth of the scriptures in our songs in public worship, singing his word back to him. So, so the Lord is actually, even as we sing, he's working in us. And of course, the command to sing is all over the Bible. Depending on how you count it, it's either the first or second most common command in the Bible. Psalm 98 verse 1 calls upon us, to sing to the Lord a new song. And Psalm 100 calls, calls us to come before him with singing. And uh, Ephesians 5, 19, uh, Paul tells us to, to speak to one another from the heart in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So that the call to sing is a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a pan-canonical call for the people of God. We are to sing God's word back to him in public worship. And what does that do to us? One, what, not only does it help us remember scripture, I mean, so much of scripture that I have memorized, why have I memorized it? Because I've sung it. I've sung it with the people of God, Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Uh, and so it not only helps us store up and remember scripture, uh, but what it does is it unites our devotion with our believing. It, it unites our hearts with the truths that our minds have been taught. And uh, it, it brings our devotion together with our doctrine. 
so that our doctrine is on fire. It's we 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 believe what we 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 truly believe uh, what it is that we're expressing back to God in song. And so the the the, the singing of God's word is actually the way uh, that God pulls us together as the whole man and gets to every part of us and unites doctrine and devotion and and we experience that and express that in our public worship it's how he makes disciples uh you know the the doctrine that we believe and confess is not just something that's just sort of our opinion about something it, it's something that needs to be worked down into our bones so that we can believe it through the greatest heartbreaks of life. Uh, I've, I've sat with a mother holding her two-year-old boy in her arms while he took his last breath. And when the flat line came on the hot hospital machine, she looked up at me and said, Ligon, can we sing the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I felt like I was on holy ground when she said that. It was was almost like being with Job. The Lord is given. The Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Her heart as a mother was broken for her child, but she had a profound and deep faith in Christ. She believed the word of God. And so even with her heart breaking, she wanted to praise God. She wanted to acknowledge God. The sovereign one is the one who gives and takes away and say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, that's what singing does. It allows us to bring those truths that we've always believed. And then in, in the deepest hour of need, just unite them with the deepest affections of our heart and then sing them back to God. God's working on us. He's discipling us. He's reforming us even in our singing. And then finally, God reforms and disciples us by our participating in and rehearsing the promises and benefits of God in the administration of the sacraments, the holy ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are God's visible words to us, representing and confirming his promises to us, written in his word. Augustine called the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, he called them visible words. And by that, what he meant was in, in when, when God's word is read, when it's preached, when it's prayed, and when it's sung, what do we do? We hear it. But in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we see the word of God. Actually, we not only see, but we touch, we taste, and we smell the word of God. In other words, when God preaches the word to us, or when we hear his word read, or when we pray, or when we sing, God addresses us through the ear to the heart and mind. In the sacraments, he addresses us through all the other senses to do what? To confirm his word to us, to confirm his promises to us. And so the sacraments are visible words. We see with our eyes, and we smell, and and, and we feel Uh, And we even taste the representation and the confirmation of God's promises to us, which are yea 
and amen in Christ. And, and, and so the, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are, are meant to, they're, they're meant to reform us and they're, they're meant to disciple us. We're, we're to really believe God's promises to us, which are sometimes so hard to believe in the circumstances and the providences of life. So in public worship, God is, not only is that the arena in which we come to give unto the Lord the glory due his name and to ascribe to him majesty and dominion and power and glory forever, it's also a place where God disciples us. He, he, he conforms us to the image of his son. He restores the image of God in us. He, he makes us to want to be what he has created us to be. He conforms our minds to the truth of God's word. He he weds our affections to God's word. He's reforming and discipling us even in public worship. That's happening every time your pastor and your elders gather the local congregation for praise. That's happening every time. So as wonderful as conferences are, there's nothing more glorious than the regular Lord's Day ministry in your own congregations where your pastors and elders gather the flock under the reading and preaching and praying and singing and seeing of the word of God written so that the people of God are not simply gathered there. What is, what is the language of the confession of faith? They're perfected, the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. So I want you to appreciate that if we're going to be reformed, if, if and, and by the way, I don't just mean theologically committed to confessional reform theology, but if, if our lives are going to be transformed by the word of God, according to God's spirit, then it is going to be under the influence of the means of grace. And God is doing that. He's reforming and discipling us according to his word as we gather in public worship. May God do his work in you to his praise and for your everlasting good every Lord's day as his word goes forth and does not return empty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together in your word. We ask that you would use it for your own purposes in our lives, that we might love you and praise you more and live for you more consistently. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things uh, that we like to do and these uh, Zoom Utopias is to, um, is to ask some questions. So uh, we did um, talk about this bit um, before, and so we've got a few questions for you, uh, Ligon, if you don't mind. And thanks very much for, uh, for joining us. And um, uh, by the way, for anyone who's watching and who's this random guy in his study, which is a, a bit of a mess, it's, it's nice meeting each other's studies. Um, I'm Darren Moore. I'm the Minister at Chelmsford Presbyterian Church and one of the organisers of GRUK today. So um, uh, just to go a bit off piste from what you were talking about, but to um, to understand a bit about you, um, you we've had a few people who lecture at seminary before um, speaking at these things. You're our first chancellor. Uh, we've got <coughs> RTS title they've given you. Um, we might say headmaster here in England, but uh, chancellor. Um, why do you think that's important? Because I know people who were at uh, churches that you've been uh, ministering in, they valued that. Why did you think it was important enough to go full time in in the role that you're, you're doing now? The the main there are many answers to that. That's a great question. The main answer is simply this one: the 
crying need for our time and for the generation to come is for the preparation of pastors who will minister faithfully according to God's word so that their their theology, their understanding of their scriptures, and their whole approach to ministry is controlled by their commitment to and understanding of the word of God. And so I, I felt like, you know, the last part of my ministry needs to be pouring my life into younger men that are going to carry this on far longer than I'll be on this planet. Men that will carry this into the next generation and to and to do everything I can to make sure that the churches are supplied with faithful gospel ministry, that men that know their theology, they know their Bible, they're committed to a biblical uh, approach to ministry. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're, they are so convictionally committed to the confession of faith that through the, uh, through the, the winds of doctrine that blow in our age, they hold fast, they're firm, they're strong. Uh, they, they cross the finish line in faithfulness to the word of God. And, uh, and, and look, I had been blessed by RTS in the same way. I, when I came back from Edinburgh, uh, to to teach at uh, at RTS back in 1990. Um, even teaching at RTS worked on me. It was part of the way that God sanctified me. And uh, and I really view those six years that I taught full time at RTS before I went to the church as always further preparation for the ministry that the Lord was giving to me. And so I knew how RTS had impacted me as a pastor, and I wanted to pass that on. To the next generation of gospel ministers. So that's really the answer to that great question. Great pronunciation of Edinburgh as well. You can teach Michael how to pronounce British place name. <laughs> the, um, and I think also related to that, I mean, actually, it's interesting what you said then relates to what you were talking about um, reforming and reforming and, uh, and part of that process. And could you help us as well, who are ministers and, and also people watching in congregations, when we think about seminary, we think of people perhaps that we know they go off to seminary and they got kind of spat out the other end and, and land somewhere. Is there anything we should be doing to be encouraging them uh, while they're at seminary and those of you who, who teach? Absolutely. The stronger a seminarian's connection is to the local church, the better it is for his heart and for his preparation. And I, we, we tell people all the time, seminary can't make a pastor. You know, it, I really think it takes the local church and good theological education to prepare a Presbyterian or a Reformed uh, pastor, because there's a lot of specialized knowledge that a pastor needs that most local churches don't have the expertise on their pastoral staff to provide. But there are things on a pastoral staff of a local church that no seminary can replace. And so unless a man is accountable and, and serving and working in a local congregation, connected to that congregation, seeing healthy church life. And by the way, we see this all the time, really gifted, young, godly, consecrated men come to seminary and they've never been in a healthy church before. Never. Well, how are they going to pastor a healthy church when they've never been in one before? So we love the partnership of local churches. Sometimes it's their local church that they've been sent out from. Sometimes it's sort of an adopted local church somewhere in the area around the seminary. And one of the blessings of our being in eight states and spread out like we are is we can have more relationships with local churches and more of our students can be interns and have opportunity to preach and pastor and serve 
in a local congregation. But that for us, that is hugely uh, important because we're not just trying to pour ideas into their heads. We, we want their lives to be transformed by the truth of God's word. We want them to understand the word of God and be able to explain it clearly and compellingly. But boy, it's in the context of the life of the local congregation that you see, Does this? can this brother submit to the brethren? Is this, is this brother a humble servant of the Lord who sometimes may be treated like a servant in the ministry? Will he be able to, to, to handle that? It's in the life of the local congregation that, that a young man learns those things. So I, I love the partnership between the local church and a good, solid confessional seminary so that you can pro- provide a well-rounded, well-prepared person for gospel ministry. Great, thanks. That's, that's really helpful. And, um Picking up on some things in your talk, I, mean, I think um, initially um, we asked you to speak on this um, uh, topic of reformed and, and always reforming. And then Josh said he's going to talk something about worship. We went, OK, um, so there's a number of <laughs> there's a number of routes you can you could have taken that. And you chose this yeah. one. You explained why. But I was thinking probably particularly over the last perhaps 10, 20 years, there's been a, a welcome increase in people who've uh, really taken to reformed soteriology. Yes, and I uh, really, you know, and there's been uh, perhaps more people latching onto expository preaching, and all these things are really positive. And often people who talk about um, the sort of reformed regulative principle of worship, they're often right. the ones who tell everyone they're doing it wrong. Um, I mean, how <laughs> do we get to this? How do we get to this point? And and uh, how can we? How can we encourage people? Uh, does it matter that? Um, I mean, as long as we get these things about salvation right, does it? Does the worship yeah. stuff really, is it that important? Yeah. Sweating over small stuff? Great question. And it's interesting. Reformed Theological Seminary was actually born in the middle of exactly what you're talking about. Evangelicalism in the United States, under the influence, by the way, of evangelicalism in Great Britain and Australia, in the middle of the 20th century, began to experience a, 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 a sort of an exporting of Reformed soteriology. So, you know, figures like Martin Lloyd-Jones and J.I. Packer and then later John Stott or uh, figures from uh, some of the Sydney Anglicans uh, who were committed to reform soteriology in the the mid-20th century, Leon Morris and others, started to have a a tremendous impact in America. And, uh, And so a lot of people that weren't from traditionally Presbyterian or Reformed confessional backgrounds started being exposed to a Reformed doctrine of Scripture, a Reformed doctrine of preaching, a Reformed doctrine of salvation, and and to embrace that. When RTS started in the 1960s, one of our aspirations was that people would not only embrace a Reformed doctrine of God, a Reformed doctrine of Scripture, a Reformed doctrine of preaching, a Reformed doctrine of salvation, but also a Reformed doctrine of the church. And and, and that's, that's part of what you're talking about. Uh, there and I, I think that's why things like uh, GRUK are so important because the greatest weakness in American evangelicalism has been the lack of a doctrine of the church, and because of the lack of the doctrine of the church, we haven't had a biblical view of how to do ministry. And so, what has reigned in America? Pragmatism. You know what? You know whatever works, do it. Instead of understanding that. Um, that the way we minister has to be consistent with the message of the scriptures. 
Um, and, and so a biblical doctrine of the church uh, is going to yield a biblical doctrine of ministry. And boy, is there a great need uh, for that, even amongst Bible-believing churches right now. You can have wonderful Bible-believing churches, uh, at least in terms of their, their pastor loves the scriptures, believes the scriptures, uh, tries to do his best to preach the scriptures, and yet dominated by pragmatism in the way they do ministry. So one of the things I've, I've loved about the, the friends that I made in Britain is they, they've got a clear view that we've got the, the way that you minister will determine the quality of discipleship in, in your church. Uh, Jim Boyce used to say, what you win them by, you win them too. So if you use an unbiblical model of ministry in order to win people as disciples of Christ, they will be misshapen by that unbiblical model of ministry. And uh, one thing that I love about my uh, confessional Presbyterian and Reformed brethren in Britain is they're, they're very, very dialed in on the importance of evangelism, but they're also very dialed in on making sure that they're biblical in the way that they do evangelism, because that, that affects the quality of disciples in the church. Yeah, it's often churches, I think often with um, solidly Bible-believing Christians, the church is useful. But like you're saying, it's important, but it's not necessarily, it's like a very yeah. important service provider, not, not, that's what right. Not what you're talking about. And it's not essential, you know, and, and yeah. you know, it's it, for Americans and we're already, Americans are already prone to individualism. Uh, you know, we, we're sort of John Wayne, Lone Ranger Christians. We're going to do it on our own. And the Bible just makes it so clear. You can't do it on your own. The, the church is the place where disciples are made. I mean, even Jesus Great Commission, make disciples baptizing and teaching them. Well, where do you baptize and teach them? In the church. You know, you can't make disciples without the church. So that, that's a beautiful way where a Reformed doctrine of the church actually enhances all those other Reformed commitments, a Reformed commitment to Scripture, a Reformed commitment to preaching, a Reformed commitment to the doctrine of God, a Reformed commitment to soteriology. Um, it's, it's enhanced by understanding the church is where Jesus intended us to make disciples. And one of the things you 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 picked up on a few, you just picked up on it there, and you brought up aspects of this um, throughout your preaching, um, was about um, the idea that it's in the church and in, in worship where we are reformed, we're in the process of being reformed. Yes. And you mentioned a few times specifically um, that in the context of suffering. So in the context of suffering, how God's word reforms us and 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 worshiping yeah. together forms actually at the way what we kicked off these conferences with when we said we never do one um was a conference on suffering we did plug your yeah. very clear on my camera but yeah. um you uh, this book that you did on a couple of the psalms um when um, pain is real and god is silent finding hope in the psalms and also an earlier book you did um that i don't have but is the giveaway book and on the on the bookstore um does god grow um does grace grow, grow best in winter that's yeah. the one yeah so, yeah um so um the, why has that been important do you think to you and um you've talked a lot about it and uh, what are some of the tools that that uh, we need to develop to to deal with that well i mean you know just that in in my own personal growth and in the growth of godly people that the lord has privileged me to minister to uh, I have seen the Lord in his own wise and inscrutable 
providence choose to use suffering uh, may be more frequent than any other instrument. You know, very rarely has he used great success and, um, you know, pleasant, uh, uninterrupted uh, blissfulness uh, in my life and in the lives of my flock to grow us in grace. I love those times and God so graciously gives those times to us. You know, there, there are times where you just wake up and you say, Lord, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places and you've been so good to me and you enjoy that. But then then the specter of suffering comes and trials and tribulations and troubles. And But I have seen how the Lord will use those things. Those things in and of themselves don't grow us in grace, but the Spirit can use those things uh, to grow us in grace. And I've just seen that uh, repeatedly. And I've also seen it, uh, it, it will amplify pastoral ministry. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking right now, I, in, in my early days of ministry in Mississippi, I lost count of the number of sermons that I had to preach um, for funerals in the case of a suicide of a professing Christian. And that's that's yeah you know, that's brutal. That's brutal for every. It's brutal for a pastor. It's brutal for the family. It's brutal for the congregation. And um, and and over and over during that experience, um, God left me, and I think God left many of us in the congregation wholly and totally dependent upon Him uh, to be able to process that, to be able to continue to believe in His providence and His goodness. And, but he also used those incredibly painful times to bring me close to people. So I, I'm thinking right now of one of my ruling elders. I, uh, a, a, a sheriff called me up on the phone to tell me that his son had taken his life and he was trying to find his phone number. And I thought a man should never hear that over the phone from a stranger. And so I, I gathered my wonderful pastoral care uh, minister at the church and we went rushing down to his law offices and we asked the secretary if he was there, and she was. And so he came into the conference room, and I held him in my arms uh, as I told him about the death of his son. And he and I will be close to the day we die. He's a wonderful, godly man. And I wish that everybody on this uh, conference call could have heard the prayer he prayed before the funeral of his son. He was a man who absolutely believed the Word of God, absolutely trusted the promises of God. And even with all the lights out, uh, he he trusted his his God, and um, but we'll be close together because of that. So I've seen the Lord just do that over and over in my life and in the life of others. And, and so I do think for every pastor, one of the things we have to do is teach our people how to suffer, and one of the things we need to do is teach our people how to die. You know, there's that that hymn that we sing, "Let me die thy people's death." That's pastors have to prepare their people to die. Because we're all going to do it unless the Lord comes again uh, uh, before before that time. So suffering and preparing people to die, that's just part of pastoral ministry. Yeah, I think it's such a hard thing to do. It's much better to do with it in, the, in, a, in a calm. Um, yes. And, and, um, uh, so, you know, so read those two books. And um, if you haven't had any teaching on suffering, uh, nag your minister for some. Um, now, if I've looked distracted, it's because um, I've, I, I'm getting Josh. Uh, texting <laughs> while I'm trying to talk to you, and um, one of the things uh, he he said here, actually, I'm mostly ignoring him, uh, but um, apparently I meant to catch you on the hoof that we'd like you to come back and do a podcast with us or a video and talk a bit more about um, biblical doctrine of worship and about 
Yeah, to talk some practicality. So there we go. You've got you've got a couple of hundred witnesses now to say that you'll do that. Uh, so that's great. Um, but I, I'm I'm meant to um, draw something. You're very brave preaching, by the way, with a clock just over your shoulder, so we can all see. Um, but um, so I know what the time is. But um, uh, so we're going to uh, draw stumps uh, there. Um, sorry, just using English idioms. But um, but before we go, I'm going to plug um, Z5. We have Matt Roberts speaking on eschatology on the 26th of January. Go to our website, uh, that's gr-uk.org. Is he still going? Um, and, um, and, and, and digest the material that's there. Uh, but I'm going to close um, in prayer. So let's, let's uh, pray. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Mm. Almighty God, we thank you that you have revealed this truth to us ultimately in your son, that you've placed your spirit in us who uh, causes us to cry out, uh, Abba, Father, that by the son we can come to you confidently. And as we've been thinking about worship, this evening in a reformed sense and the, that form of doing this uh, activity um, reforms us how passive we are in uh, receiving your word in coming to you open-handedly in prayer and we ask that you would continue to do that work in us in each of our churches wherever we are and, and as uh, Ligon mentioned as nice as this is to come together now mm -hmm. this would happen in our churches uh, wherever we are please reform mm -hmm. us we pray um, not because we want to be sound, but because we want to please you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to that episode of Grocology, which was from our Zoom Utopia 4 with Ligon Duncan, Reformed and Always Reforming. Uh, if you'd like to find out more information or watch the uh, videos to that, just head over to our website, and that's gr-uk.org. And also just make sure to subscribe to this podcast and whatever podcast uh, service you're using. It just helps us. And if you wouldn't mind leaving us a review as well. As always, uh, thanks for listening and we look forward to seeing you next time.